Hey everybody, it's Terrible Terror here, and welcome to another bonus episode from the podcast from another world. And this episode, Dave is looking at the giant claw. That's right, uh, one of the worst movies uh, that I think fall into like the older style monster movies that I can remember. And I hope you guys really enjoy this episode that Dave's got for us. And at the end of the episode, I will be back to give you a little outro and to talk about the contest that will be going up shortly after the episode has been launched into the podcast world. So, so for now, enjoy this episode on the giant claw on the podcast from another world. Anchorage from Polar Expedition 6. Anchorage from Polar Expedition 6. Can you hear me? Over. I mentioned these other solar systems. Get it to indicate that life can and does exist on other planets as well as our own. Sounds like, well, just as though you're describing some form of a super carrot. That's nearly right, Mr. Scott. This carrot, as you call it, constructed an aircraft capable of flying some millions of miles through space. The world's greatest battles was fought and won today by the human race. Soldiers and civilians met the first invasion from another planet. And now, before giving you the details of the battle, I bring you a warning. Every one of you listening to my voice, tell the world, tell this to everybody wherever they are. Watch the sky. Welcome, everyone. I am your host, Phantom Dark Dave, and here we go with episode two, and it is nothing short of a doozy. If you're new to the show, I want to welcome you. Thank you for tuning in. This is a show that celebrates classic horror and science fiction all the way from the 1920s through the 1980s. Everything from famous creature features, drive-in specials, straight-to-video, and even scientific explorations filmed in a Hollywood basement. It all lives right here. Clock out from reality and time. And come with me to a place beyond the pattern of stars and deep into the depths of the ocean as we travel to the podcast from another world.
The movie that I'm going to run through today is one that kind of fits Brian's dinosaur theme. I actually bounced around between a few different ideas, but I had remembered back when Brian and I recorded our Christmas special, he laughed and he mentioned this particular film. So I sat down and I gave it a watch, and let me tell you this. This movie, I absolutely love it, which is the theme of my show, right? I talk about movies I love. Today's movie, it debuted in 1957, and it's a black-and-white horror sci-fi film about a giant bird that terrorizes the world. It's none other than The Giant Claw. So here we go. We open up with a monologue, which explains to us the evolution of our freedom and defenses, which seems to be, for the biggest purpose of this movie, is about radars. Through the centuries, science has made man's lifetime bigger and the world smaller. Now the farthest corner of the Earth is as close as a push button. And time has lost all meaning as man-made devices speed many, many times faster than sound itself. Here, near the top of the world, free men struggle with the elements to create some measure of defense to protect that self-same freedom. Distant, early warning radar. Sensitive electronic devices to detect the presence of objects in the sky, including bombing planes and guided missiles and rain clouds and homing pigeons. New radar installations must be calibrated by the flying of controlled test flights to check the accuracy of the equipment and to chart a detection profile of the area in order to pinpoint blind spots the radar cannot penetrate. So this sets up our scene. Here we are again, much like the first episode where we're in the Northern Pole region. Our main character, who is an electronics engineer named Mitch McAfee, for the purpose of this show, I'm just going to call him Mitch, he's doing a test flight. So he's up in the sky, he's swinging that jet around while being in communications with our other main character, who's down below, named Sally Caldwell, who I'm going to call Sally, and she's a mathematician, why wouldn't she be, and she's accompanied by a radar officer. All things are going well until he comes in contact with what he believes is a UFO. He radios down about what he has seen, and the radar officer then orders the defense pilots into the sky. We get to see a few minutes of jets flying around with a really nice orchestrated score and a groovy voiceover, but that's when Mitch lands and he walks into Major Bergen's office. Well... Well, what? Well, let's not play games, Major. Did you men find it? Mr. McAfee, if you were in uniform, I'd have you under arrest and facing general court-martial charges. Unfortunately, you're a civilian, and I can't touch you. What are you talking about? But I about? can send a report in on you, and I will. By the time I get through with you, Mr. Electronics Engineer, you'll be lucky if they let you test batteries for flashlights. Look, Major Bergen, I was flying a final calibration flight. I spotted a UFO, I reported it. Does that make me a criminal, a traitor to my country, or some kind of a psychopath? McAfee, you're an electronics man, an expert on radar. Sure, that's what they pay me for. If there was something in the air, something flying, that you could see, would radar pick it up? Well, yes, Would radar pick it up, yes or no? Yes. 
There were three radars on you. Every minute you were in the air, not one of them, not one, saw anything but you. Look, and me you were told this. You knew it. Nevertheless, you persisted with your little joke. Easy now, Bergen. You continued to yell wolf until somebody pushed the panic button and scrambled a flight of interceptors. Great. Great. So your buzz boys flew around. They couldn't find anything. So now you're mad and want me to pay for the fuel they burned up or the time they wasted or something else real smart. The flight was scrambled and dispersed to cover as wide an area as possible. And thanks to your not-so-funny false alarm, Mr. McAfee, one of those planes didn't come back. Plane and pilot both are missing. So, we heard the phone ring. Major Bergen has just been notified of a flight that was carrying over 60 passengers, and it's gone missing. Mitch asks if it could be related to engine trouble, but of course Major Bergen declines because they received a distress call from the pilot who apparently saw a UFO. And similar to Mitch's case, radars detected nothing. Next scene, Mitch and Sally are on a plane headed towards New York. They're in the back and they're going over their recent discovery and that's when the weather starts to pick up. It's getting really nasty outside. The pilot radios in to get permission to fly at a higher altitude as he's, you know, he's trying to make an attempt to fly out and around the storm, but that's when he spots a UFO. As far as a viewer, what we get to see, it's kind of like a black blur and it just kind of coasts across the screen. It comes crashing into the plane. Mitch crawls up to the front cockpit, and that's when he sees that the pilot has been knocked out. He takes control of the plane, and he's able to land it, but they crash land in the mountains of some part of northeastern New York. They escape the plane just before it explodes, but unfortunately, the pilot is already dead. They are discovered by a local farmer named Pierre, who had saw the plane come crashing down. He takes them back to his home, and he pours them some of his homemade wine. The sheriff shows up to retrieve the body of the pilot, and he asks the whereabouts of the plane. He tells them that he hasn't arranged for a night flight to take them into New York City. There's a phone call from the general, and we get the same results. He said the pilot had put in a distress call before they crashed about seeing a UFO, but again, radars have showed nothing. The storm is picking up outside, and we hear the horses whimpering. Pierre goes outside to see what is scaring them, and that's when we hear a blood-curdling scream. Mitch and Sally go outside, and they find Pierre lying face down in the dirt. They bring him back into the house, where he tells us what frightened him. Oh, I remember. Now I read it somewhere. It's a superstition, a, a legend that the French Canadians started and came across the border with. Yeah, it vaguely rings a small bell with me, too. It was probably just the lightning in the storm, Pierre. You just imagined the whole no, thing. No, I saw luck, I can you. Here, take another swallow of this. She saw something weird in the sky. So, so lucky. He can't get it out of his head. Yeah, I know. I live up this way myself. There's a lot of the old folks around here believe that yarn, but this is the first time I ever heard anybody claim he really saw the old witch. You come to take us to the airport? Yeah, car outside. Oh, I hate to leave him like this. Well, don't worry, ma'am. 
Joe here will stay with him. We'd better hurry. They're holding that plane for you. Come on, Sally. They're holding a plane for us. We'd better get with it. The next scene, we're on a plane, as we are in most of this movie. <laughs> we have Mitch and Sally, and Mitch is putting the smooth moves on Sally. So Sally is sitting next to him, and she's sleeping. And he just kind of looks over at her, and he leans over, and he starts kissing her. She wakes up. She turns the light on. And that's when he says, get this, he goes, You take a kiss much better than you give a kiss. Now, I'm not so sure that would fly today, but moving on. There's a sweet moment between the two of them where he's getting poetic and there's some back and forth love talk and they even use baseball metaphors. Honestly, I kind of like it, but I don't know if the writing it's cheesy, but it's clever. Then she says something about patterns and it sparks an idea for Mitch. Open your map. Now, where I sighted the UFO, where the search plane disappeared, the transpolar airliner, our plane at Pierre's, and finally, the Navy patrol plane. Well, you were muttering about a pattern. Well, see it? Well, no. No straight line, no curve, nothing. Wait. Perfect pattern in time and distance. Each incident, each cross, later than the one before, each one further out in the spiral from the center. You mean something, something in the air flew a pattern like that? Yeah. Something I saw. Something that flew over and passed me in the air. Well, it would have to be traveling at incredible speed to cover all the distance and the time involved. Something that seemingly destroyed four planes and barely missed you the first time. Yes. Something like your flying battleship? So what you just heard was him unfolding this map, and he's penciling all the areas where the incidents had occurred. Then he basically draws kind of like a spiral, where it's showing that each attack is equally further out than the rest, proving that whatever it is has flown kind of in a perfect circle. He's convinced that it's something strange, and she just kind of laughs it off, and the whole time there's a running gag in the movie about it being a flying battleship. Now, I guess the term flying battleship is because whatever it is, it's just extremely large, but it makes you wonder, why battleship? That's okay. I like it. The scene trails off with other passengers telling them to be quiet so they can sleep. And so they go back to kissing. Honestly, it's kind of sweet, but still kind of weird. Not sure what I would do. Next day, a CAV plane flies towards the scene where Mitch's head crashed down. On this plane are four members of an investigating team and a pilot. And sure enough, they find what they're looking for. And I got to tell you, it's absolutely wonderful. Now, the pilot senses something and he starts to look around, right? And that's when we see the mysterious figure fly past them. And this is great. I'm just going to let you hear what it sounds like. Check this out. Yeah, you heard what I heard. 
Does that sound like a UFO? Let's hear it again. Now, the pilot, he actually calls it. He doesn't radio in a sighting of a UFO. It's a bird. A giant bird with a giant claw. So they all start throwing on their parachutes, and they're about to abandon ship, right? They start jumping off the plane. And just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we finally get to see the bird, and he eats the people that are jumping out of the plane. I am not kidding you. In fact, here's how it sounds when the beak actually chomps down. Now, it may sound like I'm hating or making fun of the film, but absolutely not. I love this so much. We're close to 30 minutes into the movie, and that just really gets me excited for the next 45 minutes that are left of the film. I have to talk about the bird, too, like the look of the bird. You see it flying through the air, and it's actually, it's a marionette puppet, right? We see the string. <laughs> I know they try to hide it, but we see the strings, and it's the silliest looking thing ever, and it's great! It's got, like, stringy hair, big bulging eyes, and it honestly kind of looks like a flying turkey, in a way. All I know is when I was watching this, uh, my first thought was, well, my life is complete. Like, this makes me so happy. I want part two. The next scene, Mitch and Sally are brought in to see General Buzzkirk, and we find out that Mitch's theory, well, he was right. The search plane, the transpolar airliner, our plane at Pierre's, and the Navy patrol plane. Too much, and it fits too well to be just coincidence. There have been two more since the Navy plane. Private plane here last night. The CAB plane with four passengers and a pilot here. All following your theoretical patterns, smack dab on the nose. No radar tracks, I suppose. As usual, since you started this crazy nightmare, nothing. Except about the planes. Did the pilots report anything? Not a word from the pilot of the private plane, but the CAB pilot reported a UFO. Did he say what it was? Yes. A bird. A bird as big as a battleship circled and attacked the plane. Believe me, Mr. McAfee, this is no joke. Oh, no. That plane was completely destroyed, and all five men on the board seem to have completely disappeared from the face of the Earth. Now, you're an electronics expert. Could there have been anything that big up in the sky and not be picked up by radar? Impossible. But I saw it myself. Yes. Three men reported they saw something. Two of them are now dead. That makes me chief cook and bottle washer in a one-man bird watcher society. Mr. McAfee, this is vitally important. Did you get a good look at it? No, it was just a blur as it went past. Oh, I wish I'd had a camera with me. Camera? General Buzzkirk, before I went out on this radar assignment with Mitch, I was doing earth curvature calibration work. Well, how does that help us on this? Well, we use film strips, photographed from inside test rockets, and from fixed cameras and observation balloons. Sally, maybe you've got it. If those balloons are still up, there's a bare possibility they photographed this thing, whatever it is. Next, they bring down the balloons and retrieve the camera footage. 
they're gathered around a projector in the general's office, and we see several slides of nothing, just gray skies. But finally, in the distance, there's a slide that shows a bird. And it's kind of cool how they do it. Like, it happens to be on one slide, it's in the back, and then the next slide's getting a little closer and a little closer. And with each slide, the bird gets so close that we get to see its full-on face. And this has confirmed exactly what is attacking, and it's time to attack back. Mitch, Sally, and the General, they head to Washington. Now that we're in Washington, they meet up with General Considine, and yeah, you're going to have to get used to it. There's a lot of generals, a lot of majors, a handful of characters, but it's all military, so I apologize for that part. But this is General Considine. He sees the footage. And now that he knows what we're dealing with, it's time to talk about it. Miss Caldwell, is it possible that this, um, this bird has been flying in blind spot areas that our radar can't pick up? No, sir. I checked carefully. At least ten different radar sites should have tracked it. Mr. McAfee, could speed or altitude affect the ability of our radar to pick it up? No. There's no scientific or any other kind of reason in the world why our radars don't track it. They just don't. Period. There's a general air alert on this very minute, son. Hundreds of planes from every command are combing the skies searching for this overgrown buzzard. We'll find it all right. Never fear. And when we do, General, then what? Yes? Good. Where? Okay, this is official now. Pass him the word to shoot it down. No questions, no games, no stalling. Just shoot it down. Yes. Also with this scene, after he orders them to shoot it down, he actually... He sets the phone down, but he puts it on speakerphone rather than hanging it up. We hear the pilots approach the bird, and it starts off kind of funny because, like, I can't believe my eyes. What are we looking at? Then they start making jokes like, oh, the old crow. It's quite funny. They start firing away. However, rockets, guns, none of them have an effect on the bird. All of the planes, as well as their pilots, are taken down. There's more conversation and lots of frustration with Mitch and the two generals. Mitch suggests that they try going nuclear, and oddly enough, General Considine, he was already thinking the same thing. In the middle of their conversation, they get a phone call about something that they might have discovered about the bird. So they head over to the lab, and that's when things get really scientific. I'm talking atoms, antimatter, and well, here's the scene. The atom is the basic building block of all matter. The atom this model represents is like every atom as we know it. The nucleus is positive. The electrons are all negative. In this respect, it has been maintained that all atoms are alike, but this is wrong. All wrong. According to the law of electrodynamics, all nature is symmetrical. It is in balance. And if there is matter then there must also be antimatter, a symmetrical mirror image. Now here we have a positive nucleus, negative electrons. In the reverse, we must obviously have a negative nucleus with positive electrons. Science has proved that this is so. Not in this Earth, nor in this solar system, but somewhere in the universe, there are stars, planets, whole galaxies, 
made up of antimatter. Well, do you mean to say, Doctor, that this this bird is made of antimatter? That it's reversed, uh, inside out, a mirror image, as you call it? Just a minute, General. Uh, Doctor, it's been proven that antimatter exists. But it's also been proven that whenever it comes in contact with ordinary matter, they annihilate one another, blow up. Now, why didn't the bird explode when it was hit or when it touched something? Uh, you are both right and wrong. The bird itself is not antimatter. But the bird unquestionably radiates some sort of force, an energy screen, some invisible barrier. And that energy screen is antimatter. This continues, and the general asks, where did the bird even come from? The scientist, he shows us a feather, and as if we didn't already know, he says the bird is extraterrestrial and from outer space. Which is a really good thing, because I was tripping balls and it might be from Texas. Next, we're treated to several scenes where the bird shows himself to the world, and for the first time, it flies low enough to be seen. And of course, this causes panic and hysteria. No, not Def Leppard hysteria. Okay, thank you for that. But cities of people, they're scattered. Fire breaks out. It's complete chaos. In this next scene, Sally comes over to Mitch's apartment. And apparently, she's been doing some number crunching for Mitch because he's trying to figure out a way to destroy the bird. And... He isn't even sure if his plan's going to work, but that's when Sally, she starts to tell us about her idea, and it makes sense to me. Mitch, I've been thinking about the bird, too. Yeah, you and everybody else in the world. Ever stop to wonder why the bird came here? Could it have been for food? I mean, does the bird eat, in the sense that we understand eating? Well, Dr. Neumann says that it... Absorbs energy from the things it destroys, including humans. Sort of uh, molecular osmosis. Could it have come here to rest? If it did, it sure shooting isn't. Right. So far as we knew, the bird just kept flying around the earth. Always flying, never stopping. Well, that's what bothered me, so I called General Buzzkirk. Hmm? Mitch, remember Pierre Broussard at the farm? Yeah. Him and his like a canyon. Whatever he thought he saw. Just goes to prove what they always say. Truth is stranger than fiction. Well, this was no fiction. Pierre did see something. He saw the bird. 12,000 feet up at night in a storm. No, the bird came down to earth. But you just finished saying that... Well, the... General Buzzkirk told me they found the mark of a giant claw in a field next door to Pierre Broussard's farm. And I know why. The bird came here to build a nest. Mitch hops on the phone and calls General Buzzkirk. He tells Buzzkirk that he has a plan, and he needs a plane and a helicopter. Just then, we get a special news bulletin on the radio where General Considine, or Considine, I'm going to keep getting that confused, he addresses the nation. We are faced with a crisis, a crisis for which all the nations of the world, in unprecedented cooperative action, have found, as yet, no solution. Until we do, we shall not rest. We have tried every weapon in the arsenals of the mightiest armies on Earth. They have proven worse than useless. Atomic hydrogen weapons capable of wiping cities, countries off the face of the Earth, are completely ineffective against this 
creature from the skies. Two days ago, all aircraft were grounded. Deprived of its source of food or energy, however the bird survives, the bird began a series of attacks on the ground in a fantastic orgy of destruction never before seen. Nothing has been safe from attack by the bird. Cattle, horses, fields, homes, trains, all manner of transportation. It has become obvious that the bird is attracted by movement. Accordingly, your government and all the governments of the world have declared a state of emergency and instituted martial law. In addition to grounding all aircraft, all surface transportation, cars, trucks, buses, trains, ships at sea, all such traffic must be halted at once. The movement of food and essential supplies will be handled by the armed forces. Blackout conditions will be observed from sunset to dawn every night until further notice. Movement of any sort on the streets or highways during the daylight hours must be held to an absolute minimum and only where it has been authorized as essential. You have just heard General Considine speaking from Washington. Stay tuned. Right when this clip ends, the bird flies past Mitch's apartment window. They hurry and leave towards Pierre's farm where the giant claw mark was spotted. They take a helicopter over and they start hiking through the hillside. There's together, there's the three of them, and I'm including the pilot named Pepe. They spot the bird as it lands, and yep, she guessed it. There's a nest, and in the nest, there's an egg. Pepe sees this, and he's smart, man. He's like, nope, I'm out of here. Because what do they do? They pull out guns. They're going to shoot the egg. And I got to say, this scene, it actually got to me a little bit. I know it's a large bird that's terrorizing the town, but man, just seeing them shoot bullet holes into the egg and then the insides of the egg, like the liquid just kind of spraying out, knowing what's in that egg, that's really heart-wrenching. What a way to waste breakfast. While this happens, the bird, you know, he's sitting on top, or she is sitting, I don't know, let's just call the bird Basile Rathbone. The bird is sitting on top of the egg. It gets really angry, and in a fit of rage, the bird takes off towards them and starts, you know, crashing into the trees, and now all the branches are coming down, and they actually fall right on top of them, so they're forced to take cover. While they're buried beneath the brush, we switch over and we see Pepe, who got a head start, but he's running down that dirt road. Don't start singing that song. This is not Old Town Road. I'm not playing the clip. I'm not doing it, but I do want some Doritos. Well, he starts running down the dirt road, and here comes the bird, and poor Pepe, he becomes bird food. They manage to get out and get a car, and I think they're at Pierre's farm, so I'm as tear to assume it's Pierre's car. Not 100% sure, but they take the car. They're driving down the road, and we see another car that's coming up behind them, and it's approaching pretty fast, and of course... It's a car full of careless teenagers, and they're honking the horn, and they're tailgating, and, you know, this is the 1950s. It's a convertible. They're, like, sitting on the top. One, I think, is sitting on the door. It's completely careless, but eventually the teens, they pull up, and they have a short chat, and what I'm going to do, I'm going to go ahead and play the clip because, my gosh, they are annoying, and I want you to hear it. Get off the 
Yeah, I wanted to show you. That way you can join me in feeling so happy when the bird comes down and attacks them. So what happens is the bird, it swoops down, and this, this causes two of the teens to go ahead and like jump out. They're like, hit the deck! And they dive into a ravine, and they start rolling down a hill. They actually make a good call, because let me tell you about the other two. They stay in the car, and the bird literally picks up the car and lifts it to the sky, and the claws kind of shred the car to the point where it explodes, and they die. Like, straight up. Mitch and Sally, they pull over, and they pick up the two teens that had jumped out of the car, and they take them to the hospital. Next scene, Mitch and Sally head back to the lab to meet with our generals, where Mitch shares his idea of how to take down the bird. Once again, we're going to get really scientific. Mr. Caldwell McAfee, I'm a busy man. I hope this isn't some sort of crackpot wild goose chase. You and me both, General. Well, it's your dime, boy. What is it you want to show me? How to shoot the bird out of the sky. Some new type of weapon? No, with regular guns, bullets, and bombs. Anything you want. McAfee, I told you that I haven't got time to... Mr. General, this idea of mine may prove to be as phony as a three-dollar bill, but I still think it's worth a listen. Well, go ahead. Now, I don't care whether that bird came from outer space or Upper Saddle River, New Jersey. It's still made of flesh and blood of some sort and vulnerable to bullets and bombs. If you can get past that antimatter energy screen. Right. That's exactly what I think, what I hope I figured out how to do. I have just invested a dime of my own, boy. Keep talking. Now, this is a blow-up I had made of a bubble chamber photograph. The chamber was bombarded with high-speed particles. Result? A photograph of a trail made by what is known as a Mew Mason. But notice this hole, this gap right here. This gap is one of the most exciting and significant recent discoveries in all science. You probably know about it, Dr. Neumann. Yes, yes, the formation of a temporary Masic atom, the Mew Mason with a hydrogen nucleus. Right, but... Mu masons are 210 times heavier than electrons, which means that in a masic atom, the electrons revolve around a nucleus at just a small fraction of the ordinary distance in the normal atom. I know you don't understand all this, General, but stick with me. Now, the masic atom is extremely small, small enough to sift through the electron defenses of the ordinary atom and fuse with its nuclei. Atoms of matter or antimatter. Right, Doc. Now, if this thing of mine works, and we can get close, real close, and bombard that bird's antimatter energy shield with a stream of masic atoms, I think we can destroy that shield. The bird would be defenseless then except for beak, claws, and wings. You could hit it with everything but the kitchen sink. We've got kitchen sinks to spare, son. Do you think you can do it? Well, I kicked around some ideas. I'm not sure they'll work, but it's certainly worth a try. The next few scenes, we see Mitch try several experiments, and each one of them fails in different ways. Now, we know as viewers that he's just getting closer and closer with each attempt, but you can really see the stress kind of settling in. There's a cutaway scene, and we see the bird swooping down, and it actually it scoops a train right off the tracks. It's really cheesy but it's kind of cool to see that the bird's just not afraid to go there. And let me tell you something. I mean, this bird's, a, even though it looks silly, right, it's a real threat to the world. It's killed hundreds of people. 
We head back over to where Sally is sleeping on a couch, and then there's a huge explosion from the lab. So she screams, gets up off the couch, the general runs over, and together they walk in and find Mitch. He's laying on the ground where one of his experiments had exploded. We cut away, and now Mitch is waking up in a bed, and everyone is gathered around him. And you were there? And you? And you? Okay, I'm kidding. But he does wake up in a bed, and this is actually how it goes. Easy, son, easy. You did your best. We can't have you killing the patient trying to cure the disease now, can we? A magnificent effort, Mitch, magnificent. It's unfortunate it was doomed to failure from the start. Oh, great. Now, if somebody will just deliver the eulogy, the deceased can be safely laid away to rest. What's the matter with you? Are you all nuts or something? Mitch, are you all right? Sally, how long has it been since the explosion? An hour and a half, two hours, I guess. Oh, we're wasting time. Easy, son, easy. Is that bird still in the air? Why, yes. You still want to shoot it down? Well, yes, yes, sure. Well, then, for Pete's sake, let's get with it. General Buzzkirk has had a plane waiting in that field outside of New York ever since we started the experiments. We've got to get the equipment installed on that plane. Mitch, the apparatus didn't work. The experiments failed. Mitch, please lie down in bed. You were hurt in that explosion. Oh, of course you don't know. The explosion was no accident. I did it on purpose. I used the Masic atom projector. What? Sure, we had the basic wiring all fouled up. It was a simple matter of adjusting the polarity on the main condenser terminals. I figured it out while you two were asleep, set it up right, and tried it. Oh, wait a minute, McAfee. Wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that that machine of yours works? Sure. What kind of plane has Buskirk got waiting for you? An old uh, stripped-down B-25. Good. Maneuverability instead of speed. Yeah, the whole operation may depend on being able to turn on a dime. Well, then what in blazes are we waiting for? Well, that's what I've been talking about for ten minutes. Get me my pants, will you, General? We're over at the plane, and we hear all about the plan. They've rigged this plane to fire from the back, so that way they can try to lure the bird and fire on it just as it approaches them. They say, if we try to fire from the front of the plane, it's too dangerous. You know, they don't want to risk flying into its mouth. But if they can have the weapon in the back, they can wait till the bird opens its beak and then just fire right in. So the bird is spotted flying towards New York City. So they go ahead, they load up on the plane, they head into the sky. The bird is actually poached on top of the Empire State Building. It's a really cool visual if you have a chance to look it up, which I should go ahead and mention. This movie is free on YouTube. If you want to watch it, please watch it. I think you guys will love it. If you're listening to this episode because this is just fun, you're going to enjoy it, I promise. But the bird's on top of the Empire State Building, and it, like, crashes its head down, and it's destroying the side of the building. Debris comes falling down into the streets. It starts to hit innocent bystanders. Power lines are being knocked over, and the coolest shot is when the bird uses its beak to, like, peel and pry part of the building off, and it just kind of waves it around in the sky. Then it lets it go, and it goes smashing through, like, a glass rooftop of another building. It's full of people, of course, and again, I keep saying about how menacing this bird is. Like, this bird has got a higher kill count than Freddie, Jason, and Michael Myers put together. I'm just saying. The bird flies over and lands on the United Nations building. It starts pecking away with its beak, and of course the building's being torn apart. They see it, and so they fly over, and you know they're trying to get the bird's attention, so they start circling around the bird. Eventually the bird gets annoyed by them and decides, okay, it's time to pursue the plane. And so the plane's taking off, the bird's 
following them. And the bird is also crashing through several rooftops of buildings. So more damage to the city is being done. And I want to say again, like we see all these brick walls fall and crush people. Okay, like this was Big Bird before Sesame Street, and he was pissed off. Though I guess it's not, I mean, it has to be a girl because it had an egg. Which, how did the bird even get pregnant and lay the egg? I don't know. I don't study how birds do all that stuff. And I'm getting off topic. It doesn't matter. Basile Rathbone, whatever. So, the bird is closing in on the rear of the plane, and here we go with the climax of the film. With two minutes left, the weapon is ready. So aim fire four shots and now the bird's shield is penetrated and that means fire at will let's take this little bitch down they fire rockets at the bird and one two three it is hit several times and the bird comes falling out of the sky and crashing into the depths of the atlantic ocean and we watch the last shot as the bird has his giant claw in the air and it is slowly sinking And that's it. There's the 1957 film The Giant Claw, which actually had an alternate title of Mark of the Claw. I don't know which one I like better. The film was distributed by Columbia Pictures and was produced by Sam Katzman. Sam Katzman also produced classics like Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, It Came from Beneath the Sea, Voodoo Man, The Ape Man, which, honestly, they might all land on this show. Love that stuff. And I love Ben Lugosi. Katzman originally intended on using special effects from the master Ray Harryhausen, but ran short on budget and was forced to go with different effects on a different team, which I won't name. And thus, this is the creature that we ended up with. The marionette puppet. The film was directed by Fred F. Sears, who also went on to direct, surprise, surprise, Earth vs. the Flying Saucers, and a lot of westerns. Rumor has it Sears was a go-to director of choice for Katzman because he knew how to get the project done on time and under budget, which, to me, that sounds a lot like Mr. Roger Corman. I want to talk about something that I'm going to start doing on this show from here on out. I want to look at some of the actors and actresses and give them kind of like a Lifetime Achievement Award from myself based on the genre and maybe some crossovers that they do. And so I'm not going to do every actor in the film. Luckily, we didn't have too many people to pay attention to in this movie, but I want to call out our top performers, okay? So let's start with our main actor who plays Mitch, Jeff Morrow. Jeff was no stranger to the world of science fiction, making appearances in the 1980s and the 1950s Twilight Zone. Brian's favorite film, The Creature Walks Among Us. This Island Earth. And Andy's favorite film, Octoman. That's right. Our leading actress who played the role of Sally is Mara Corday. And I hope it's not Mara Corday, but it's M-A-R-A. Mara? Mara? Miss Corday? (laughs) She'll definitely be mentioned on this show in the future because she appeared in classics that I love, such as The Black Scorpion and Tarantula. So when we start making our way into kind of those astronomical creatures, well, I guess we already did. (laughs) This bird was big as hell. Okay, coming soon to a podcast near you. She had experiences as a showgirl, and... Wait. Oh, is this right? Let me fact check this. 
open up this box of Playboy magazines here. 1960, 1959, 1958. Okay, December, November. Uh, Here we are, October 1958. And yes, I have just confirmed she was Playmate of the Month for Playboy magazine. October 1958. Set this over here and save that for later. All right. Robert Shea, who played General Buzzkirk. He made appearances in sci-fi as well. He was in the 1990s The Flash TV show, represent DC. He was in Land of the Giants, How to Make a Monster, War of the Satellites, Indestructible Man, Tobar the Great, and represent more DC. He was in 90 episodes of the 1950s Adventures of Superman. Shout out to Johnny Staggs. That's cool. But I gotta say... I'm going to give the award for most impressive filmography to Morris Ankrum, who played our General Considine. Considine? Considine? I'm never going to get this right. He was also no stranger to science fiction, guys. He was also in horror. He appeared in X, the man with X-ray eyes. Half human. From Earth to the Moon. How to Make a Monster. Giant from the Unknown. Beginning of the End, Kronos, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, the original 1953 Invaders from Mars, Red Planet Mars, Flight to Mars, Rocket Ship XM, and even worked in movies with some of my favorite people of all time, Mr. Humphrey Bogart and Miss Judy Garland. So, I tilt my hat to you, sir. Wait, tilt it? That made me kind of gangster, right? Very Humphrey Bogart. I take my hat off to you. Uh, Phenomenal work. But overall, guys, that's the giant claw. What did you think of the episode? If you think it's cool, man, go watch the movie. It's on YouTube for free. I personally have the DVD because I loved it. I've watched it two times for this podcast review, and I will watch it many more times to show my friends because they know Dave's got that crazy DVD collection, and I'm all about it. So for now, clock back into reality and time, but keep your eyes and ears open, because next month, we're going to take another voyage to the podcast from another world. you guys really enjoyed the episode on the giant claw that dave did with the podcast from another world uh don't forget that following monday after the day that this is released so this is being released on a saturday so you have a couple days to go back to both podcasts and on that monday you're going to go to either the terrible terror podcasts 
uh, Instagram or Facebook page, and there's going to be a post, and you're going to tell me the name of the actor that we both mentioned, both in this podcast and the last one, and you're going to go ahead and post it up there. Now, I understand that there's going to be probably a lot of people saying the things, and everybody's just going to be put into who gets the right answer is going to be put into, you know, a hat or something like that. And we're going to be selected from there on the next podcast, on the next full-length Terrible Terror podcast on Tammy and the T-Rex. We'll announce who the winners are, and then we'll get in contact with them. So you have about uh, about a week to get everything done, and if not, if I feel like there's not enough people, maybe we'll push it back and we'll do it for the podcast after Tammy and the T-Rex. But I want you guys to try to be on your best behavior and not just kind of look and see, you know, what other people have answered and, you know, put your own answers out there, um, you know, and just, I guess, try to be at least somewhat fair. But everybody's still going to be random who gets it right, and then we'll contact you through the, uh, you know, either direct as a direct message, depending on where you're following us. So if you follow us on all platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we can get in touch with you and let you know whether or not you have won the contest for the week. Um, and I really hope that uh, we get a lot of entries, uh, and I uh, hope you guys really enjoyed both episodes that we did with the Velocipaster and now with the Giant Claw. So thank you guys very much for listening, and we'll catch you next time on uh, the Terrible Terror Podcast Network, or if you like that podcast network, one of those networks. Bye!